The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This episode is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc. administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, and Merck & Co. Inc. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational series with this specific podcast titled Germline Testing in Genital Urinary Cancers, How I Do It. It's really my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kristen Scarpato. Dr. Scarpato is Associate Professor of Urology at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center and has been a practicing urological oncologist since she began her clinical um, time as staff there. Uh, her real interest is uh, across the full spectrum of urologic oncology, but, but as she and I were talking a little earlier, specifically in the realm of, of prostate cancer and advanced prostate cancer, and, and obviously uh, is very relevant to a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. So Kristen, first of all, uh, always delighted to have you. You've done a number of these with us. Always appreciative that you carve out some time out of the busy day to, to join us for these podcasts. So thank you. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be here. And I, as you said, um, really enjoy treating patients with prostate cancer. And this is an important topic. So I want to thank you and the AUA for um, inviting me for this podcast. So um, maybe what we'll start off with is um, maybe give us the, the 20,000 foot perspective, you, you know, whether we call it learning objectives or not. But, you know, what, what, what are we going to be covering maybe in the next 30 minutes or so? And that'll maybe get a nice framework for our listeners as we, as we sort of talk about some of the nuances of genetic testing. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's really been increased attention on genetic testing in urologic oncology today. And I think it's important for all urologists to understand the words that are being thrown around and the implications for our patients, not just those in urologic oncology, but specifically, um, or importantly, those of us in urologic oncology should really have a handle on genetic testing and, and genetic counseling for patients with um, urologic malignancy. So today, you know, I hope that we can really differentiate between germline and somatic testing. What does that mean? Uh, particularly, we'll focus in on, on prostate cancer, but this is important across the spectrum. And then describe kind of what is meant by genetic counseling and what some of the other terms associated with that are, like um, cascade testing, and maybe talk a little bit about common questions that patients will ask when it comes to genetic testing and then kind of hone in on the implications for patients with prostate cancer, um, what, what these test results really mean and why they're important. No, that's great. That, that's a really super, super summary of, of uh, what we hope to cover and, and, and what we hope to hope impress upon our listeners. So, you know, the, the, the real, I guess, real simple question right out of the gate is, and, and that's true not only for uh, urologists, but, but as you well know, 
so many of our practices have uh, advanced practice providers, whether that's PAs or nurse practitioners who play a, a key role in our in our clinics and the evaluation of patients and and in those oncology clinics, in many cases, survivorship elements. So um, why should people care about this? And, and you know, uh, quite simply, you know, why does it matter? And, and, and I feel like that's a really important question before we dive into some of the nuances of, of the different types of testing and things like that. Yeah, you know, I, I, like I said, there's increased attention on this today across kind of the spectrum. And when you're sitting in clinic and you have a patient across from you with a new diagnosis of prostate cancer, one of the first things they're thinking and one of the first things we're going to ask you is, why did I get this cancer? Why me? And a lot of times we have the answer. I should say sometimes we have the answer and, and sometimes we don't. But if there's a genetic component and we're understanding more and more about that, that can have really important implications for the patient and their family. So I would say, you know, first of all, because patients want to know about it. Um, and we as a field really have a better understanding now of genetics across the spectrum of urologic malignancies. So certainly kidney cancer was one of the first areas where we learned about the importance of, of genetics, um, urothelial cancer, and then uh, prostate cancer. And we are today in an era of um, precision medicine and personalized medicine. Those are two terms that are thrown around quite, quite regularly. And as we understand a little bit more about the biology of cancer and the genetics of cancer, um, it is important for, for us to know about that. You know, the majority of cancers, I think it's well established, at least in our current understanding, are sporadic. But, you know, there's, there's really good research right now that shows, I've seen so many numbers, but, you know, 10 to 15% of patients who have advanced prostate cancer may harbor mutations in genes that can be important for targeted therapies. Um, so the more we understand, the better care we can take of our patients, the better we can counsel our patients. And kind of to that end, um, we need to know about it because our patients um, may not have access to genetic counselors right off the bat. I think the demand for genetic counseling and, and our now increased ability to order genetic testing has kind of like outstripped the ability of the available genetic counselors to um, handle. And so we need to be a part of that to take better care of our patients. You know, I, I think the, the latter point you made is, is so absolutely correct. It's, it's really interesting. I think we're both at the SUO meeting and I feel like this came up at one point on the plenary session, which is, you know, if you look at um, the need to, to really sort of order genetic testing and, and the appropriateness, it really does um, in many regards outstrip, especially when you go to perhaps non-academic medical centers, the ability to have genetic counselors and cancer genetic counselors at all these locations. And so I do feel like the onus falls on us a little bit to at least have a framework of when to order it and, and you know, some basic rudimentary understanding of of maybe starting that process, particularly if you're maybe not in a resource-rich environment where you have counselors who are readily available to see all of these patients. So I, I totally agree with you. And so yeah, I think you alluded to this a little bit, but but give our listeners, and, and, and it's impossible to do every malignancy, so I'll just ask you to pick the, the malignancy that's kind of in your wheelhouse, which is prostate cancer. 
give us some ideas and maybe um, some of the data regarding um, how often do we see, um, you know, if you want to call it um, hereditary mutations or, or germline mutations for, say, prostate cancer? Give us some idea of that. Yeah, you know, I think that all of us um, are familiar with a really important study that was published in the New England Journal several years ago, the, the Pritchard study. And um, for those of us who have attended any urologic oncology meeting, that pie chart is kind of like embedded in my, my brain. But basically this multi-centered trial looked at 700 patients with metastatic prostate cancer. And these patients were unselected for family history or age of diagnosis. And they looked at germline DNA mutations um, I'm sorry, looked at germline DNA and they assessed for mutations. And uh, what they found was that about 12%, 11.8% of patients who had advanced prostate cancer, again, not like kind of pre-selected, um, had DNA repair gene mutations. And this was then compared to um, the, the general population of patients with localized prostate cancer, um, which was much lower, it was around four and a half or 5%. Um, and then they looked at the different genes that um, the mutations were found in, and there were um, about 20 different DNA repair genes that were associated with advanced prostate cancer, uh, most commonly being BR BRCA2. That was in about like 5% of the population, but other mutations, ATM, CHECK2, BRCA1. And this study for, for me really kind of put this on the map and impressed upon me the importance of genetics in prostate cancer, particularly patients with um, advanced prostate cancer. And I've seen some um, kind of more recent data looking at um, this same question with, with rates maybe even higher. So as we're understanding this a little bit better, you know, the 11.6%, the um, we may see that number increasing. So you, you've talked a little bit about um, the, the germline mutations from the Pritchard paper. What about, um, well, maybe even before I talk about somatic mutations, maybe just tell us a little bit, what, what is the difference between somatic versus germline testing? And then maybe bring us back to maybe some of the rates that we see for both the, the germline, which you've already mentioned, and, and then obviously somatic. So maybe just, you know, what is somatic and what is germline and, and, and how are they different? Yeah, really, really important distinction. Um, germline refers to what's inherited, what we get from mom and dad, what's kind of in every cell of our body, and that has important implications for other family members who are related and may have similar uh, mutations or risks. Um, germline mutations can be detected in blood or in um, buccal swabs versus somatic testing, which refers to tumor tissue only. So it's a mutation that has occurred in the tumor itself. That's the primary tumor, the metastatic tumor. Um, and this is typically obtained through biopsy, preferably of a metastatic site, but also you can get it from the primary site. Um, we now know too that circulating tumor DNA is another way to obtain information on somatic alterations. These um, can change over time too. So germline testing, um, that's gonna stay the same. You know, those, those don't change, but somatic uh, mutations can be different over time. And so 
you know, in certain places, particularly academic centers, um, patients may undergo multiple rounds of somatic testing if they have a change in the course of their disease or they're not responding to certain therapies. Um, and also importantly, um, somatic testing can, um, can reveal the, the presence of a germline mutation as well. And so often if someone has a, a somatic mutation, that may lead to some further germline testing. So you spoke a little bit earlier. That's that's so helpful because I feel like when, when you talk about genetic testing in this blanket term, I think it's really helpful for the listeners to understand what you articulated so nicely, that there is, it, it, it is a blanket term, but but there are different elements and, and um, and different ways that we are looking at germline versus somatic and where we get this tissue from. You talked a little bit about the Pritchard paper that was looking at metastatic CRPC, and you, you cited about a 12% likelihood of, of you know, patients there having a germline mutation. What about, um, tell us, talk just a little bit about somatic mutations, maybe in prostate cancer. Um, how often do we see that? And is there a range between maybe localized disease versus versus metastatic disease? Yeah, I think that somatic mutations occur uh, more commonly, at least in our current understanding. And for patients who have localized disease, this is about 20% of tumors will have an identified somatic mutation versus those who have advanced disease. We can see you know, up to about 25% of patients who have um, especially BRCA2 and ATM mutations. So more commonly seen with somatic, uh, or somatic mutations are, are more common um, than, than germline. And then maybe, uh, you know, taking almost one step back, um, I think we all probably should do a better job at, at you know, obviously querying the family history and, and elements like that. So uh, I realize we've been speaking a lot about genetic testing, but maybe um, talk just briefly, if you don't mind, just practically speaking, you know, the family history elements, just say of prostate cancer, um, and, and what are the key sort of, you know, the big ticket items that, that we should really be asking patients when, when we try to catalog whether they potentially have some sort of hereditary risk? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that we all now are understanding of familial syndromes and certain cancer associations. So certainly we ask patients who have a diagnosis of prostate cancer if there are other family members, particularly first degree relatives who have prostate cancer. And I think this is true for, for all patients, localized or advanced, but especially for patients who have advanced disease. And then asking about breast cancer, ovarian cancer, asking about pancreatic cancer, and um, oftentimes considering the age of diagnosis. So if you have a first degree relative who has breast or prostate cancer, you know, how old were they? Were they less than 50? Was it when they were 80 and they did great? Um, and then, you know, patients who have, um, have familial syndromes. Um, so Lynch syndrome is one that we think of associated with, with GU cancers. Um, so, you know, sometimes, rarely patients will say, oh, I know I have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation in my family, and, and that makes it easy, but most of the time they don't. And so when we have patients sitting in front of us, it's really important to ask about that. Um, you hate to find out about it later, later down the line, you know, 
it's um, it's an easy thing to ask. Doesn't take a lot of time, and it can really have important implications. No, you're 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 completely right, and you know we've been talking about prostate cancer, but and I would tell you just in in having completed the recent upper try track guidelines, very similar themes that, that, you know, we really should be asking because a lot of upper tract cancers are certainly, if they're in the Lynch syndrome associated variants can be associated with endometrial, gastric, colon, so on and so forth. And then really to underscore some of the points you made, really the, the sort of the guidelines of the new upper track, the, the new guidelines for upper track really talk about tumor testing. So somatic testing that may then inform upon those patients who have mutations in their tumor tissue that would then prompt you to do germline testing. So really, I think the themes that you articulated so nicely for prostate, um, certainly even in the most recent guidelines that have come out, really underscore these, these same concepts and ideas. So how, how, how do we actually know who to test? Uh, so obviously, um, you've, you've really talked about the importance of it. We've talked about different ways that we can do genetic testing. Mm -hmm. um, what are the resources and, and you know, how, how do we, obviously, you know, applying it to an entire population is probably testing too many people. Yeah. So what, what are the guidance on who to test? Well, fortunately, there are many professional um, society guidelines that are available. I love the AUA guidelines and, you know, I was part of the advanced prostate cancer um, panel for the recent revision. And, um, you know, there's some guidance there. Uh, the NCCN guidelines, I think, are, are nicely laid out as well and um, kind of bullet points of if this, then that. So, you know, any patient who has an advanced cancer, um, the NCCN has very specific guidelines there. Um, ASCO also. Um, so all of these society guidelines really help us in terms of um, who to test. Yeah, no, it's, I, I, I would tell you, I, I agree with you. I, I feel like um, uh, I personally rely on the NCCN guidelines a lot just for, for a sort of this specific element. And, and I think it does help. And I honestly, even at our place, I feel like using some sort of standardized guideline does streamline, I think it at least standardized to, to some degree uh, practices uh, across the board. So we, we talked about this a little bit, but um, you know, the, the sort of to sort of revisit this issue, do you need a, in order to actually do this, in order to actually do, whether it's germline or somatic testing, do you need to have a, a genetic counselor in your practice? And and we've talked about it a little bit, but maybe, a, you know, the very blunt question, do you need one to do this and, yeah. and toe the water? Can you, can you actually contribute without perhaps having that dedicated person in your practice? So if y'all walk away from one with one piece of uh, information or one takeaway today, um, the answer to that is no. Um, and I think that's been a real barrier. It's been a real kind of stopgap where providers, urologists um, feel uncomfortable with broaching this topic or feel like, oh, I'm maybe not the best suited for this or, you know, this is not in my wheelhouse. And that is absolutely not true. Um, I do think that urologists can perform this pre-test counseling. We can order the tests. Um, we can do it. So I think it's really important for good and complete patient care for us um, to do so. So, you know, you bring up the topic with your patient who's in front of you who has the diagnosis of prostate cancer and 
potentially some of the other risk factors we talked about, or they have, you know, advanced prostate cancer of some form, um, and tell them, hey, you know, genetic testing can be important for two main reasons that I highlight. One, that's cascade testing, and we can talk about that in a second. And then two, it may have implications for you on your future treatment options, you know, what's available for you. So, you know, I tell them what the results may show. So you may have a pathogenic um, or pathologic variant that's identified, or you may get something that says likely pathogenic, or, you know, a variant of unknown significance, or it may be negative. And basically, if you get anything other than negative, you are going to be plugged in with a genetic counselor, someone who has way more knowledge and information than me about what this means. And so I think as long as you can say that and explain to the patient, like, this is important because of one and two, um, and here's what we're testing for, and here's what the results may show, um, I, don't, I don't think you need a ton more than that. Um, you know, they may have specific questions for you, and we can kind of talk about what, what the insurance implications might be or, you know, a fear of uh, kind of discrimination or, or things that may uh, be possible results of, of their um, test result if it's abnormal. But um, we as urologists can absolutely do um, pre-test genetic counseling. And, and you, you mentioned, maybe uh, talk in a little greater detail, talk about this, this cascade testing. You mentioned that really briefly. And, and talk about that. What, what do you mean by what is cascade testing? And, and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so cascade testing refers to your family members, your, your relatives. And it's really two part. One part is revealing to your family member, hey, there's a genetic condition that is familial. And family members should get tested because you may harbor this as well. And that may have implications for, for you. Um, many people don't know they have genetic conditions, and so they may have some disease that um, unfortunately progresses and then is identified, and it's less treatable, less curable at that point. So the purpose of cascade testing is to identify things that are actionable and can then have a kind of positive result on outcome um, afterwards. And so um, after the tests, and so, you know, letting the family know, hey, I have this, and here are the results, and this is, you know, kind of what it means. And then, two, you might want to get tested because you may have a better outcome if you harbor this as well. Um, so oftentimes, um, the genetic, uh, the, the testing uh, panel or the, the test that you're ordering can offer um, some services to families, like free kind of cascade testing uh, for the specific variants that was identified. And so that can be important as well. No, that's great. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I think um, <clears throat> some of the things that I've sort of learned from my own practice over time is um, sometimes in a in a busy office visit where you're just seeing patients, seeing patients, seeing patients, it's really easy sometimes to. I find sometimes you forget. You just say, um, you know, you just you forget about that patient maybe who has either advanced prostate cancer or, um, or or they they hit some of these age or family history. And I'll tell you what's really interesting, but I feel like if it's on your radar, I had a number of my own patients who I've seen them. I said, you know, did we ever talk about this at your last visit? And and the answer was no, we didn't. And, and you, it's really amazing. You could actually capture 
a lot of these folks, if at least you have it ingrained in your mind, sure, you would love to have caught them the first time you had the conversation. However, the other side of it is, if you actually remember to do it, at the end of the day, six months later is probably not the end of the world. And, and it allows you sometimes to capture these. Because in many cases, you might be the only person that they are actually regularly seeing, even beyond their PCP. And certainly sometimes you never see it, they never see an oncologist until much later in the game. So you do have a lot of opportunities, even if you don't, you know, knock it out of the park that first time that you, you see them. I'm sure you knock it out of the park every time. <laughs> so, so here's um, maybe the practical questions that, that patients will ask. Um, and, and I think you've covered some of these, but, but the one that comes up, I think most frequently is, um, you know, is it covered or, or how much am I going to have to pay for this? So maybe talk to us a little bit about that. The real, I mean, important element of the financial aspects of this testing. Yeah. In my experience uh, here, most of the time it is covered and oftentimes insurance mirrors kind of what guidelines say. And since guidelines recommend strongly um, genetic testing for patients with certain conditions and certain family histories, um, insurance um, rarely gives pushback there. But it's important to check with the patient's individual insurance and the particular lab or panel that you're um, utilizing. Many of these labs also offer um, patient assistance. And so it is um, it is rare that we have any issues with insurance coverage, which is good, you know, and there's there's kind of been um, recently this past year, some um, national federal legislation that is uh, intended to help eliminate some of the financial barriers when they exist for patients who are um, needing um, genetic testing. Um, and this, uh, Reducing Hereditary Cancer Act. This was um, intended to kind of create coverage for people who have Medicare and then associated genetic mutations so that families can have access to, you know, the recommended screening and any potential like risk reducing therapy or surgeries. And um, I'm not entirely sure where that stands right now, but I'm happy that it is in the discussion nationally because it's important for these patients, especially as genetic testing has become such an important discussion. Um, and if if you if you don't mind, I'll just like kind of continue that with talking about this. Um, you know, a follow up question to that is: Am I going to be discriminated against in some way because of this genetic test and the results if they're abnormal? And in 2008. Uh, something called GINA, the Federal Protection Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, was approved. And this prohibits health insurance companies and employers from discriminating against an individual based on their genetic test results, their genetic information. And so that's a really important piece of information to make sure that your patients are aware of, because um, when we think about genetic testing, that this fear like kind of immediately pops up in people's heads. I'm never going to get coverage. My employer is going to fire me. And that is not legal and, and not the case. But um, there can be um, some implications for disability insurance or um, long-term care insurance for certain results, I believe. One, one maybe other and, and practical question and, and everyone's experience may be a little bit different, but 
maybe I'll just ask you how you sort of manage these scenarios. Let's just say you have a patient that comes into your office who does not have a known history of, of cancer, say prostate cancer, mm-hmm. but they have a family history. Maybe their brother had prostate cancer and their sister had breast cancer. So your spidey sense is sort of tingling that maybe you, there's something going on here, but the patient doesn't have a known diagnosis. Um, how do you approach that situation? Um, is genetic testing able to be covered in those scenarios? Um, what about the at-risk person who does not have a diagnosis uh, there? Any any thoughts on that scenario? Yeah, you know, if the patient does not have a diagnosis of prostate cancer yet, their ability to undergo genetic testing, germline testing, um, is pretty limited in my understanding. Really, they need that diagnosis. But if they tell me like, hey, my brother was diagnosed when he was 42 and my sister when she was 35, I would encourage him to encourage them to have germline and genetic testing. And then he would be eligible for cascade testing in that scenario. But in the absence of him having a diagnosis of prostate cancer, it, I um, would not recommend or I would not order any genetic testing at that point. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's very much how uh, yeah I face this situation several times, and and I I've, I've seen it both with kidney cancer and, and prostate cancer, and it, to exactly your point, it's often been maybe um, the sibling or the son or the daughter that's come with uh, their parent, and and I and they've actually been interested in the testing, and I've sort of said if your father or mother or whomever gets tested and they're positive, then it becomes easier to your exact point with the cascade testing for you to be tested. And, and sometimes I feel like that helps uh, um, and it sort of helps move uh, move the needle. Um, well, Kristen, you know, I, I feel like these podcasts um, are so valuable. I, you know, you and I had emailed uh, back and forth about really like a how I do it because mm-hmm. this has become almost you look at every guideline. This is, you know, part and parcel in all of them whether it's advanced prostate cancer, upper tract, um, um, uh, uh, kidney, um, it's all part of it. But, but I think that it's, it's, I don't want to say it's empty unless you actually have some idea of how to do it and what the implications are. So obviously very much appreciate um, you taking the time and what I think is a very practical application of this broad concept. Well, thank you. It is, it is my pleasure to be here. And um, you know, I, I'm excited about what the future of prostate cancer looks like um, with precision medicine, with PARP inhibitors, which we really uh, didn't get into the weeds on here. But I think we are feeling more comfortable with the concepts and the discussion of genetic counseling and genetic testing. And really, that is, I think, all the better for our patients. So thanks so much for having me. No, that's super. So again, uh, Kristen, thanks so much. Uh, always great having you. Uh, again, always appreciate that you, you do make some time to do these uh, for the Office of Education. And to our listeners, uh, very much thank you for your time, uh, your attention. Uh, Dr. Scarpato has put a few um, um, uh, questions that will help you just sort of query some of your knowledge after this. And uh, on the AUA University site, we will have uh, some resources as well for those of you that are interested in reading more. 
uh, Kristen, I wish you and your family a, a really a great and safe holiday season. And I look forward to seeing you hopefully sometime soon. Thanks, Dr. Raman. Take care.